Good morning again. It's my pleasure to say to you, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. To the book of Philippians, I will be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, let us sit with Paul, a wretched sinner who persecuted you and your people. But one for whom you set apart before his birth to belong to you is all of us who are in you, Lord Jesus, now have found to be true for us. Let us taste of his pen, of his words. In his circumstances, he writes to a people, to a church that he so dearly loved. Do this by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we begin our journey through the book of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Bookstores, Amazon.com, they are jam-packed, filled with tens of thousands of books on self-improvement, self-help. Because the condition of the human race and every one of us in here for we're honest, we, we relate to it, that deep down in our souls, we yearn for meaning, we yearn for happiness and contentment. And so the human being in our state as creatures are consumed, are consumed with a drive to try to fill that need. And in our sin, we think we're getting it and we reach out to get it in all the wrong places. Drug addiction, alcoholism, promiscuous sexuality, money, 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 toys, one relationship to another. And at times we feel like, I got it, I got it, until the door slams in our face again and again and again by life's circumstances. And those circumstances we cannot control. The marriage turns bad. A friend betrays you. A tragedy, unplanned, 
strikes the family. A disease invades the body. The government decides to shut down your business. And it has destroyed you economically. And on and on it goes. What we long for as the human being is idolatry. We look for the idolatrous, fleeting feelings of peace or exhilaration. But now we come to Philippians. And one thing that rings through this book is that true happiness, biblical happiness. And a happiness that we can only taste now, but is promised to last forever and ever and ever. Comes from the deep-seated conviction that Jesus, in all His glory, is better than life. Better than any in all circumstances. All good circumstances and all bad and or horrific. And one thing we hear in this letter, the Apostle Paul tells us, I have learned the secret. I want to know that secret. He says, I've learned the secret. In every circumstance of contentment, it's through Christ who is my strength. And so Philippians, it has been known as, and it's true, it is a book of joy. The word joy, charis, is, is used 16 times in this very short little letter of four chapters, which if you sit down and just read slowly, it takes you 18 minutes to read through Philippians. And in the midst of deeply painful and dire circumstances, Paul had not only learned, that in whatever circumstances he in to be, to be content, he learned what he told the Philippians. To rejoice. Always. And again I say, rejoice. Philippians is a, a book of joy. That is not gotten from temporal circumstances. It's gotten from the gospel. And Philippians is also noted for its great theological, doctrinal statements. Even though the book is not a doctrinal treatise like the book of Romans is. Or, or like the book of Galatians is. This letter that Paul writes to the Philippian church is a deeply felt love letter. It is a letter that flows from personal relationship and affection for these people in that congregation. But, be, not, not, not but, say, because of that, this book bleeds theology. Because Paul thinks doctrine. Paul lives doctrine. Paul feels 
doctrine. The gospel is his life. And it is the gospel, truth, proclamation, and statements that created his deep affection and love and bond with these Christians in Philippi. And that's why as you read this this very personal letter of love, you'll see that the entire argument of Romans chapter 1 to 8 of God's justification of the sinner by faith alone is stated concisely in one verse in Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 9. And I, Paul, want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, It depends on faith. The summary of his entire teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection is found right there in chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And then, of course, there is that greatest of all Christological passages in the entire Bible. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind in yourselves, dear Philippian Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. And so, there's the introduction to my introduction of the book of Philippians. And so the question then remains for this morning is, what is this thing? In this book that we'll be working our way through, it didn't drop out of heaven directly from God. Here you go. Believe this stuff. Oh, it is the infallible Word of God through a particular person, Paul the Apostle. In a particular context, time, and a relationship with a particular church. And so as I do with every Bible book that I work through as a pastor and as, as a preacher, as a teacher, the first sermon is an introduction to what is this thing? 
Where are we going? The when, the what, the who, the how, the why. And so, big, large backdrop first before we get to a little bit more focused on a context and a purpose. And that is, what is this thing we're looking at? What's the big thing of why and when was it written? And the when and who did it are really simple and there's no controversy over this. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, this letter that is filled with joy, filled with the admonition for rejoicing. He wrote this from prison in Rome in either 61 or 62 AD. But let's move way back now through years and see what is this man here who writes this and what led him to the place to write what we're going to be reading over the next number of months. What led him to pen this and what is the real context of this particular soul? Because if we miss this, we're going to miss the whole point of this letter. See, very little Worldly speaking, very little since Paul's conversion to Jesus 25 years earlier went peachy keen. Very little in his life was a bunch of stuff that says, that'll just bring me such great joy and not pain. Immediately after his new birth, he had to be rushed out within weeks out of the city of Damascus. They put him in a basket and let it down through a wall to get him out of town because of his preaching of the gospel. He ends up in Jerusalem and Jesus had to appear to him and to tell him, get out of Jerusalem now because your enemies want to kill you for his preaching of the gospel. On his first missionary journey, he was chased out of the city of Iconium. And then he was pelted with rocks and left for dead at the city of Lystra. In AD 49, AD 50, Paul and his missionary team went on their second, or his second missionary journey. He had Silas with him and Timothy and Luke, and they set out. And so if you want... To feel the context, turn to Acts chapter 16, because this is where Paul and his gang bring the gospel to these people in this city called Philippi. Starting with verse 6, we read, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, think Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the Lord's clearly leading them. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So a little backdrop. It's called Philippi by this time. The city was actually founded back in the 300s of B.C. by Philip II of Macedon, who happens to be Alexander the Great's dad. It was officially annexed by Philip in 356 B.C., particularly because it was very close to some gold mines, and that worked good. And so at that time, the city's name changed. Philip named it Philip. Pi, the city of Philip. By the second century BC, as, as the Roman Empire is growing and slowly expanding, they conquered Philippi, and in 42 BC it became a Roman colony, which is pretty significant in the empire. Most cities were not Roman colonies outside of Italy. This gave a lot of privilege to the people there. It meant the town, the city was ruled by Roman law, just as if it were Rome. It reflected Roman lifestyle, architecture, culture. Many Roman soldiers, when they retired, settled in Philippi. And so unlike many towns, it had this status, these rights, the rights that all the cities of Italy had. Roman citizenship. And so here they are. The group, Paul, Luke, Timothy, the others, they arrive in Philippi. And as was their custom, they seek to preach to the Jews first. And they find there's no synagogue. Evidently, not enough. You need at least ten men to start a synagogue. And so on the Sabbath, instead, they go down to the river and they find some Jewish women praying together and they have a discussion and they share the gospel and some of them were saved. And Luke focuses us on one very wealthy businesswoman whose name was Lydia. She was wealthy, she had servants, she certainly had a substantial uh, estate and house and so she urged the missionaries sleep here in my house. Stay here. This be your headquarters. And so, the church in Philippi was born. This is its beginnings. The next few weeks, day after day, Paul's having Bible studies with them. They're inviting more people. And on and on it went. And he had to make a decision, and he decided, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to have to risk. I'm going to have to risk the gospel ministry here because as they would go to Bible study and prayer day after day, there was 
a demonized girl who was a slave and she had a number of owners who were in business and they made money off of her fortune telling but as they would pass by publicly in the street every day she'd try to advertise Paul and the gang saying they're from God and here, they're here to tell you the way of salvation and he finally couldn't take it anymore and so he cast the demon out of her. And what he feared happened Pick up in verse 19 of chapter 16. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, which was not true, but this is their excuse, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. No, really, they lost money in business. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And you know the story, one of the most famous conversions to Christ in the history of the church, the jailer. The next morning, they released them, knowing they had no case, but Paul also played his card. Very few people had this card. It's a Roman citizenship card. And the leaders of the town, this Roman colony, knew they blew it. And they wanted to just release him privately. And Paul says, not happening. You publicly humiliated us. We came here with the gospel of Jesus. And you're going to release us publicly and humiliate yourself. And so he had them do that. But they got out of town. Left Luke there to help with this new birthed church to lead and to pastor. They went to the next town of Thessalonica, and it wasn't long before a riot happens and they're chased out. Of that town, they go to Berea. Same thing happens. They get Paul out of Macedonia altogether, get him on a ship to safety, and he sails up to Greece, goes to Athens, and then he's in Corinth. And in Corinth, he was then again hauled before the Roman proconsul for the message of the gospel. And then he returned to his home base in Antioch of Syria after the second missionary journey. There they recuperate, they serve in the church there for the next year, year and a half, before they embark on Paul's third missionary journey, which goes through the regions of Galatia and then Asia again, a long time in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he had opposition both from the Jews and the huge riot of the Gentiles in that town. And after that riot finally ceased and calmed down, he revisited Philippi. Now it's five years after he first planted the church there that he returns now to Philippi. 
There he goes back up to Corinth. And then the plan was to go back home, first to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. But they discovered a plot against Paul's life by the Jews. And so the itinerary changed. And Paul went by land back through Macedonia, back again to the church in Philippi. Now, during that third missionary journey, you know this, we just went through the book of Acts, Paul had been for a year, year and a half at least, raising money from all of the Gentile churches in his mission in order to bring that huge love gift offering to the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. And during those first number of years, at this time he's ready to go to Jerusalem, it was 10 to 12 years since the church in Philippi was birthed, and there was a special bond and affection that Paul really had toward that church. And as for the Philippians themselves, they never forgot Paul like others did. They ongoingly, throughout that 10 or 12 years at this point, ongoingly supported Paul's ministry financially again and again. Now when Paul wrote what is called 2 Corinthians, during that third missionary journey, where again he's coming to Corinth and he's preparing them to raise their offering for the church in Jerusalem, he appeals to the Philippian church in Thessalonica probably in Berea. The Macedonian churches like Philippi, he says to the Corinthians, be like them. Even in their deep financial poverty, they gave abundantly because of the grace of God working in them. They begged us, Paul, please let us participate in this. That was Philippi. And so then Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. We know the story in this church just over the last few months ending the book of Acts while he's in the temple. Some Jews from Ephesus recognize him. A mob gathers and he is savagely beaten and was saved from death because the soldiers intervened and arrested him. And now while he's in custody in prison there in Jerusalem, another plot from the Jews to kill him was discovered. And so the Roman commander sent him off to Caesarea, 40 miles away, to the governor of the province. And his case dragged on and on for two years, sitting in jail, until he had to play the card again. He's a Roman citizen. He has this right. 80% of the people living in the Roman Empire did not. I appeal to Caesar. 
To Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you shall go. It is his right to get his trial before the emperor in Rome. And so they finally get him on a ship. And then lo and behold, <laughs> a storm hits and they go through that horrible experience and stranded on Malta for a few months. And then finally, Paul arrives into the city of Rome as a prisoner, able to rent his own quarters, but chained to a Roman guard awaiting his trial, he arrives in Rome in A.D. 60. So, let's feel Paul's plight. He's in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's facing the prospect of execution for his stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's all alone, except for Timothy and, and Luke and Aristarchus. That's what happens when he first gets there. Now, what is not mentioned much is how poorly Paul was received in Rome. Yeah, we, we, we know from the book of Acts... He was celebrated when he first got there. They went out to meet him. We saw that in these two different towns and the Christians there and ushered him in. But not so as time went on. Now when we read the book of Romans, that letter that Paul wrote to the church of Rome five years before he got there, we would think that any church, any Christian people that received that great theological treatise from Paul would owe undying gratitude to him. But it's not what happened. By the time Paul writes this letter, which is probably two years after he got to Rome, so two years had elapsed. He's still a prisoner, still awaiting trial and the outcome. By that time, many church leaders, pastors, were jealous of Paul. And they neglected him. And many of the Christian people followed them. Paul writes these words in chapter 1. He's referring to Rome and the church. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely. But thinking to afflict me. Paul. In my imprisonment. The letter's coming. From this situation. So two more major, major points. 
before I close this morning. I'm going to ask these two questions, deal with them briefly. What is therefore now, got that, the more immediate context of the letter that we're going to be working our way through? And secondly then, what are some of the purposes, which is connected to the context, of why he's writing it to them? So first, the context. Some time has passed since Paul got to Rome before the Philippian church got any word of it. There's no internet, there's no emails, there's no text, there's no TV. Takes him a while to find out he's even in Rome and in imprisonment. And they get word, they find out, and they were alarmed by the seriousness of Paul's situation. And they immediately gathered together as a congregation and they dug deep down into their bank accounts and raised a huge amount of money for Paul's support in what he's going through in Rome. And then they took one of their, their main guys, Epaphroditus, and they gave Epaphroditus instructions on how he's going to relate to Paul about things there. And it seems to be clear also, Epaphroditus, as you re relieve Timothy, get Paul to send Timothy to us and you serve Paul there. That seemed to be the plan. And so he takes off with that offering for Paul. And it's like a 40-day journey from Philippi to Rome. But on the way, Epaphroditus got bad sick. Okay. He can go down and get antibiotics. Right? He almost died. We get this. Listen to how Paul talks about this in chapter 2, verse 25 and 20 to 28. He says, I, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister. To my need. No. He's telling them why. I'm sending him back right now. He's not staying like you hoped. Okay. For he has been longing for you all. And he's been distressed. Because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill. Near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him. But on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And so here's Paul, ready to pen the letter. Epaphroditus is better. And Paul is sending him back with this letter. And it's clear they wanted Timothy to come and Paul tells them in the letter, I can't do that right now. Timothy's too important to me. As a son to a father, I don't know which way the trial's going to go. And so he sends this letter through Epaphroditus to bring it back home. He gets back to Philippi, 
they gather together. And one of the brothers reads this letter out loud to them. Now, purposes for the letter. First of all, this letter is a big thank you letter. That's what it is. It is Paul expressing his deep gratitude to them. In chapter 4, start with verse 10. I'm not going to read every verse. Just get the flavor. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, at length, you have revived your concern for me. It was kind of you to share my trouble. <clears throat> and you, verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, looking back years now, when I left Macedonia, we just read about this in chapter 16, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. Only. Before he even left Macedonia, watch this, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So first and foremost, this is a thank you letter. At the same time, it allows Paul to explain why he's sending Epaphroditus back so quickly. He almost died. They're very worried about them. Paul knows the joy that's going to happen when they see his face. So it's a big thank you letter. Secondly... The Philippians were concerned about Paul and they wanted to know how he was doing. And so Paul lets them know how he is doing. But even in doing that, he tells them, even though I have some very difficult circumstances here, he tells them those circumstances have served to advance the gospel, which is amazing. Paul says some amazing words, even when motivation of some gospel preachers is wrong. He says, I rejoice. Because Jesus is at least being preached. And so Paul's here. He's not sure whether he's going to get executed or released. So we get that great passage for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It comes into context. It says, look, yes, to, I can be done. Maybe my ministry is over, Jesus. Let me go be with the Lord. That would be even better. But in the midst of it, he says, look, if I stay on, I might get out of Rome. I might be free. I might be able to come back to you and Philippi fellowship with you and teach you and be with you. And he says, therefore, my hope is, Philippians, that I do get released and not killed right now to come to you. And third, another major purpose in this letter is to warn the Philippians of the constant 
danger that is posed by the Jewish Christian sect. That in their preaching of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and you got to have faith in him, they say, and you must add works of the law to your faith in order to be saved. We call that particular Christian sect the Judaizers who would follow Paul to city after city after city where he would plant churches and after he leaves, they'd come in with their teaching. Now, here's just one little taste referring to that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Look out for the dogs. Yep, that's what he called them. It's not nice. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who try to compel you Gentile Christians to be circumcised, in other words. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then there's the fourth purpose. And that is that Paul in this letter pleads for the church as a whole, as a community, to stand fast and to be united. Because of Epaphroditus, it tells you, we got some problems here. We got some divisions going on. There's two women in the last chapter he'll talk about too. He says, Paul, maybe send Timothy, help us. So there's clear disunity that they're dealing with in rivalries within the church at Philippi. So Paul writes these words in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 4. And so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so, we'll begin reading this letter then. Slowly, next week. So here's my take home from this introductory sermon on the book of Philippians. And that is this. Remember. Just keep remembering Paul's life of suffering. And as we're reading it, he's writing this as he sits imprisoned not knowing the outcome, death or release. That's the context. And yet, what we have is one of the most joy-filled letters in all the Bible. And 1,958 years later, this book continues to speak. 
freshness, with power. Our circumstances, our situations, they differ, and we're all in different ones. As a global community, we've been experiencing something for months. As a nation, we experience right now turmoil in unprecedented ways in our own lives, micro or macro. They're different. But in the message that the Philippian church received, we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit addressing us in all circumstances today. The words of Philippians, the sentences in Philippians, the paragraphs in this book must first be understood in their original context. Paul and Timothy to the saints in Philippi. That's it. Yes, that's how you get at the meaning. And the meaning that Paul meant when he penned it from prison back then is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in this church, this week, next week, and week after week for the months to come. So over the next few months, let let us hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let Paul's secret that he found be our secret of a joy-filled life in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. You most likely know this well, but here are his words. I know how to be brought low, smashed, devastated, crying, fearful. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound when everything is going just fantastically. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. The secret of facing plenty and hunger of abundance, need. Here it is. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's His secret. His secret is that Paul filled his mind Filled his affections, his heart, his desire factory with hope. Filled it with Christ. Filled it with the word of God. Filled it 
with the gospel. As he says in this letter, oh, I long to personally, experientially, prayerfully know him more and more. I press on for the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And we will see that that dynamic in the Christian life is intricately connected to doctrine. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We thank you for the gift of your servant, Paul. Your ways are mind-boggling. From the foundation of the world, you chose one horrific sinner like us who even expressed that sin in deeper ways than any of us can imagine in our own lives by persecuting the church. And you have given us 13 writings from him. And we thank you for your grace and your carrying us in the months to come as we work our way through this one writing of Paul to the Philippians. To the glory of your name, Lord. Jesus, to the glory of your name.